Let us look at John 20, and before we consider the surprises of the resurrection, I'm going to be looking at surprises that happened on resurrection morning. And let me give you a, a good just Webster Dictionary definition of a surprise. To encounter suddenly or unexpectedly. To catch you unaware. To cause us to feel wonder, astonishment, or amazement as at something unanticipated. I, to set the scene, uh, what if you went out to Rolling Hills Cemetery, you buried your mother three days ago, and you went there and the coffin was missing? Would you be surprised? Wake up. You can eat man at church. This is Easter. Would you be surprised? I mean, my loved ones had better be there. But someone better not have stolen the coffin. We paid too much. Uh, it would be a great surprise. Uh, and just think of Jesus. He told his followers at least three times in Matthew, three times in Mark. He keeps saying, Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks for the sound team. He kept telling them, I will die. I will be killed. Over and over he said it. It was not without repetition. But he said, I want you to know I will rise again. But the Bible says they never got it. They never got it. Just like some of us never got it. But listen to what someone has said. The meaning of the resurrection is a theological matter or maybe a philosophical matter. Say, I don't believe it. That's okay. You could be wrong. And, uh, but no one can make you believe the meaning of the resurrection. But the fact of the resurrection is a historical matter. Do you believe anything in history? Do you believe Lincoln existed? Do you believe the Holocaust really happened? Yes. I mean, we have people that are obliterating history. If they don't like it, it didn't happen. But you can't do that to history and be a sane person. I mean, you may not believe what happened. You may not get the significance, but the history of it, it happened. And then I just recorded when Christ said he would rise again, uh, he only showed up 16 times uh, from his resurrection over the span of 60 years. Listen, he appears to Mary Magdalene. They see him. They talk to him. They eat with him. He appeared to the women at the tomb in Matthew 28. There was a few other women with Mary of Magdalene. Then Peter, he revealed himself to him in Luke 24. The disciples on the Emmaus Road, the disciples in the upper room, the disciples with Thomas present, uh, to the seven by the lake of Tiberias in chapter 21 of John, to the 11 disciples in Galilee in Matthew 28, to over 500 people at the time that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said there's still 500 people who live in Palestine who have seen Christ in a resurrected body. That's not too bad. 500 people who witnessed the same event. 
to James, the brother of Jesus, to all the disciples at his dissension in Acts 1, to Paul on the Damascus Road, to John on the Isle of Patmos, to Stephen when he's being martyred. Now, they were cowardly before, three days before the resurrection. These men proved to be cowardly. They were scared for their lives. They were just mere men. They fled. They fled. But the resurrection of Christ forever changed them. Let me read to you. This is out of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Just a brief. Stephen was martyred, we see in Acts 7, stoned, rather than to deny that he knows a resurrected Christ. James the Great, the one that was called James, the son uh, and a, of Zebedee, an elder in the early church. He dies. He's, uh, he, was he took him to death. They, they drank in the city of Parmesan, he was offered as a martyr. Philip was killed. Matthew was beat to death. James the Less was clubbed to death, and his brains were dashed out with a fuller's club. Matthias, he was stoned at Jerusalem. He was voted in to place to fill in the apostolic band. St. Mark, on and on, every one of them martyred except John. What made the difference? They were surprised to find there was a resurrected Christ. A resurrected Christ. Look at John 20. And I just will lift from the narrative. First, we have Mary Magdalene shows up. That's the first great surprise. How in the world is it that a woman is entrusted as the first one to see the empty tomb? And then she runs back to Peter and to John and convinces them they ought to go and examine for themselves. What's amazing about this Mary, she's from a vicinity called Magdala. This woman had seven demons in her when Jesus met her. Seven demons. Uh, she is converted. The demons are cast out. She begins to support Jesus out of her own purse. She must have been a woman of wealth. Who knows how she made her money as a demon-possessed woman. But she had money, and Luke says she underwrote Jesus and the disciples. She helped feed them. She helped. Jesus didn't perform a miracle every time they were hungry. There was people, and mainly women, who underwrote the food bill for the disciples in Jesus. Yes, uh, she, uh, the few women in the gospel, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this Mary stood at the foot of the cross. They showed up. All the disciples had fled, not her. It sounded like she would have been willing to die at the cross. She never forgot the man who cast the demons out of her. And she shows up. Did you know that according to Roman law and Jewish law, this woman was not even permitted to testify in court? The testimony of a woman in the first century in Palestine was worth nothing. And yet, she's the first to bear the news of the gospel that says he's not here. He, the tomb is empty. 
So here come Peter and John. They, they run to the tomb. When they get there, John gets to the opening of the tomb. The stone's been rolled back. And uh, he just, he's stunned. And according to John 20, verse 9, the moment he saw that the tomb was empty, it says, he believed. believed. You mean he hadn't up to that time? Nope. In the book of John, many times, they believed they didn't believe. They believed they didn't believe. Kind of like a lot of people go to church. I believed it for a month. I quit believing it for a year. I believed it for a week. I quit believing it. John wasn't saved yet. But he kept following. He'd hoped this was Messiah. He'd hoped he's going to bring a kingdom, but no kingdom shows up, only a bloody cross. And he stands there. He's looking, but he believes. Peter comes up. John had outrun him. He runs instead of stopping in his typical type A personality. He just rushes right in. And boy, he goes, and he starts examining all the grave clothes. I want to see. They're all wrapped up. They're folded. They're neat. But there's no body. Are you aware that he was wrapped in about 100 pounds of cloth besides spices because they mummified him? They tried to. They tried to imitate uh, Egypt. They want to keep decomposition odors away. So they take and they wrap the cotton, and in between the cotton, they kept putting spices, spices, 100 pounds worth. He's wrapped, he's wrapped, he's wrapped. On resurrection morning, some miraculous way, we've got the wrappings, but we don't have the body. Because some way, he just came out of the wrappings, got out of the wrappings, and... When the disciples go back, Jesus shows up and starts talking to Mary. She's in the garden. Listen to what verse 11 says. Mary stood out the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away. Now, who's the they? She's just supposing. Somebody took him. He needed no they. Just he did it. She said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus. You can see Jesus in a resurrected body. He's not a ghost. He's in a real body. A real body that can see standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Why? It's maybe 5.36 in the morning. It's early. She went early to the tomb. She then, she's been crying. She's in grief. She, she didn't recognize. Maybe it's the gardener. It's Monday morning. Watch. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, you remember they thought he was a ghost on the Sea of Galilee, so they mistook Christ many times. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. How could she have gotten him? 
I figured Jesus weighed, you know, maybe let's say 175 pounds. Let's put 100 pounds of spices. That'd be 275. She couldn't have carried him if she wanted to. But this woman wanted to find her Savior. Watch. Jesus said to her, Mary. How many Marys do you think are in the world? But the way he said Mary to Mary, she knew it was him. She said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And in rabbinic literature, it meant more than teacher. It often was a term used of Messiah. Some believe it's the first profession of his deity. Anyway, she knows it's him. Jesus said, stop holding on to me. And if you read Matthew, some other women joined her in this. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary went to the disciples and she said, I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. Now John is giving us a selected narrative. Why is he telling us this story? Look at verse 30 of this chapter. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He does seven to eight signs in the book of John. There's more in Matthew. There's more in Luke. But he selected, John did, seven to eight for his gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, one who is co-equal with his Father, deity, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, God will save you, the narrative is telling, without ever seeing him, just believing on him, just believing the narrative, just believing the story John is telling you. You can be saved today without seeing him. You can be saved by believing in him, believing in him. He goes on. He shows up in the upper room with his scared disciples, ten men, in a locked room out of fear for the Jews. You see, they're still uh, mere men. They're still trembling. They don't want to die. They don't want to be martyrs. They're, this is threatening. These are troublesome days, scary days. He shows up in the upper room, and you talk about being surprised. Huh, tell me how, how you would like this. If we knew there's going to be a threat today and we had every door in this building locked, all the doors locked, everybody locked, locked down, locked down, locked down. They're talking about Columbine 20 years ago. Locked down. Nobody gets in. Nobody gets out. And all of a sudden, Jesus is standing on the platform. Hello, congregation. I thought I'd show up and give you a living demonstration that I'm alive. Would you be surprised? They're there. And look what he does. 
They're scared to death. And he says, peace with you. In a way, I want to say, Lord, you've got to be kidding. Do, do you not know what's going on in this city? And he's going to say it three times. Peace with you. Peace with you. I just derived several things from this. He's always been able to get into locked doors. You know, China kicked God out when communism took over. They killed every Chinese pastor they could. They extinguished the church there. They drove Chiang Kai-shek to the island of Taiwan. They, they even incarcerated Watchman Nee. They said, we will extinguish Christianity. And about 40 years later, as men got into China, they only found about 50 million Christians in China because God could get in where he's supposed to be locked out. We've got a church in Russia. We've got a church. I visited with Russian pastors in Kiev. I went to Whitechapel, Ukraine. God's got a church there, and they sing in Russian. There's nothing men can do to lock this one out. He shows up in the room. He didn't knock. How did he get through the room? We don't know. How did he get out of the grave clothes? We don't, he just did it. The resurrection body, we have not yet got under the microscope. That you can just show up. And he shows up, peace be to you. And then he said, hey, I came to show you my hands. I want you to examine them. I want you to examine my side. And on first appearance, a little gross. I don't want to put my hands in nail-scarred hands. But if they're resurrected nail-scarred hands, you better believe I want to examine them. Zechariah 12 says, when Israel is being surrounded by the nations of the earth to extinguish them and to kill them, Messiah shows up out of the heavens. He splits the Mount of Olives. And according to Zechariah 12, when Israel, surrounded by our foes, looks up, she says, who is this coming with nail prints in his hands? And they begin to mourn as a woman who has buried her firstborn son. Who is it? It's Messiah. And they ask him, where did you get these wounds? He said, I got them in the house of my friends. I paid a visit to the earth, and they sent me back wounded. But the only way you can get a sinner to heaven is somebody's got to bear his penalty. And that's where the wounds come from. Well, Thomas missed this meeting. You got to be sure you don't miss church on Sunday. Something's liable to happen. <laughs> you hadn't seen. So uh, if you miss, you just missed out. So he said, I won't believe until I see it for myself. Well, he attended the next week. They're in the same room. The doors are all locked. And, and they're all up there. And listen to what he says. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. <laughs> Just a bold statement. He was basically scientific. Unless I handle it, touch it, I can't believe anything I can't handle and see. You know anybody like that? Unless I see it, 
unless I feel it. Nothing's real that you can't touch or see, right? Right? How many of you have ever seen an atom? I'm looking for hands. Well, I guess they don't exist. Now, you know you'd boo me out of the room, wouldn't you? You dummy. There's atoms. They're talking about spreading them. I can't even find them. Do they exist? Sure they do. I was just thinking, I often fly on planes without ever seeing the pilot. That's crazy. How many of you go up in the cockpit and say, I want to meet you before you fly? I wouldn't mind smelling his breath. I want to be sure he's sober. I don't want Jack Daniels flying me. I want him. You know, you got to. Hey, there's a lot of things we base our life on. You put me in the, oh, 36,000 feet in the air with a man I've never met. That, that's, uh, that's quite a commitment. It scares the daylights out of me. I don't want to fly anymore. <laughs> but we get there anyway. But this Thomas, he's just real. I won't unless I see it. And so Jesus in kindness shows up and comes in that room. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and start believing, Thomas. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. That's the first statement. He is more than a man. He is my God. This is a God man. He said he would do this. He is doing it. You can't find any other founder who is not in the grave they were buried in. You could end Christianity if you could find the body. We can't find it for 2,000 years because he's alive. You're going to get to examine the wound someday for yourself. Whether you put faith in him or not, you're going to see a nail-scarred Savior even judge you because he said, I'm going to raise every man, woman, boy, and girl from the dead some to eternal life and others to eternal separation. You're going to see a nail-scarred Savior someday. He's going to see to it. But he goes on to say something. Then Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is there anybody in this room that has believed in him without seeing him? Because now you know how you're saved. You're saved by hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. And guess what the surprise is? You'll get to see him later. You're going to see him either at death. You, there's a generation of us who don't that like the idea of dying, we're hoping that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our body will be transformed, translated, and we go to heaven without dying, and it would save so much money if we could do that. <laughs> no funeral arrangements. But 
Anywhere you go, our future is full of surprise, and it will be happening in the cemetery. Rolling Hills got all kinds of my loved ones up there. I mean, all the way to my grandfather Howard, born 1880. Buried out there. My folks, my brothers, my sister, on and on. I'll tell you what a surprise it's going to be someday to see Jesus according to John. He, the Father, has committed to him the power to raise the dead. And no matter who you are, you will be raised someday. He will raise you either to judgment or to inherit eternal life. Are you prepared to meet him? John said, I'm writing you this gospel that only two things are necessary. Do you know who he is, his identity? He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. That is the message. And then, by believing in him, just trusting him, believing the record that the, the apostles gave us, an accurate record. We have over 5,000 bits of the New Testament all the way back to about 100 A.D., some on up into the 3rd century. One of the oldest documents, all kinds of evidence, one of the greatest historical documents on record is the New Testament in Greek. Over and over. Herodias, we have 50 copies. Plato. So, but this one, over 5,000 copies that we can compare with this one. Say, and they all say the same thing. He came. He died. He came up missing three days later. And he not only was missing, he started revealing himself to over 40 days to this person to that person. Did you know that you could know Christ if you will believe his word? You don't, you don't need to handle, you know what? Peter said, whom having not seen, you love. Have never seen him. The surprise of history is we're all going to see him face to face and we're going to get to examine the body I love what a great preacher said years ago. He said, no dead king lit the signal fires of the Pentecostal upper room. It was no dead king who sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. No king struck Saul of Tarsus off his animal and made him come face to face with Christ. No dead king showed up on the Isle of Patmos to a 90-year-old man that the Romans could not get the oil to boil when they tried to boil him alive. An old man that died, not a martyr's death, died of old age, but Jesus showed up on an aisle and he wrote down 22 chapters of the revelation of Jesus in 90 AD. No dead Christ saved you that night, that day. You finally said, I believe, I believe he died for me he rose for me, and I'll have to wait to see him, but I'm going to believe in the meantime. So we're in for some great surprises. You know, I, I've been hoping to see him for, oh my, I can't tell you because I don't look that old, but I've been waiting a long time, and I will see him. 
But you know what's going to be nice? When I go up to him and, and touch his hands, touch his side, some of the men we were talking, it's going to be a long line in eternity to get your turn. I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> but just think, by the time you see him, saying, Jesus, I don't have to see. I already believe. You said, I'm more blessed than Thomas. He had to have empirical, tangible evidence. I believe, Lord. Faith has made him so real that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God and the spirit of God is able to rent the veil of my blindness, take away my prejudice, take away my perceptions and all of a sudden I can hear Peter say, not having seen you love, I have fallen in love with a man I have never seen. I am trusting one I've never seen to forgive all my sins. You say, how can you do that? The Spirit is a wonderful artist. He can paint an image of Christ that there will be nothing that will disappoint you when you see Jesus. He'll be everything the Spirit of God painted upon the canvas of your mind. A wonderful Jesus. Some of you still got the door locked. You need to let him in. We just baptized a woman Friday night, and uh, a couple of us interviewed her for membership last Saturday. So we heard her testimony, and she tells the story that uh, because of uh, hardness of heart, conflict with home, parents, she fled home when she was 20. She became a chemist, works at BioRad, got into scientific studies, was gone from home 14 years. I don't think she ever called her dad over once, one time. She, she's basically hating her father. So she's now 34 years of age. She happened to see a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, great book has been used on college campuses for years. Evidence that why we believe, why our faith is reasonable. And she read that book and she kind of laid aside all of her scientific bias that said it couldn't be true and it was a great help to her mentally. Then God started putting all these Christians in her life. Roommates, she would uh, get a roommate to split the rent, you know, whatever. And seemed like every gal that moved in the room was a Christian. You see, God knows how to get into locked doors. He just places one of his own ambassadors there. Said, you think I'm locked out. So these people are witnessing. She shows up on a job. People are believers. We had Rod Bird and his wife showed up Friday night to see her get baptized because he worked with her at BioRad. She said... Uh, Somebody on the job or someone said something revolutionary. They said, you ought to read the gospel. Duh. Been in church all of her life. Been running for 14 years. But it'd be nice if you would read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. She said, I started reading those gospels as though I'd never read them before. But I'd also read the verse in Revelation 3.20 that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
if any man will open, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. She said, well, I was praying one day and reading these gospels and trying to find my way back. She said it was so loud. I got up from my knees and I went to the front door. And I opened the door and I said, Jesus, come on in and take over. I, I need a master. She said, I grew up, I used Jesus like a rabbit's foot. He's good enough to get me to heaven, but I'm going to live like hell in the meantime. Because I'm a rebel and I don't want to obey. Said that day, I said, come in. I've made a wreck of my life. I need a master. I need a Lord. I need more than just someone that can save. Come in. Be my master. Some of you are here today. You're trying to use him to get to heaven, but you haven't let him take over. And you're going to hear him knocking. He's, he's alive. He's trying to get in. Will you let him in? You've let sin in. You've let your best friends in. When are you going to let Jesus in? He's alive, and someday you're going to be surprised. You're going to see him, and he will be the judge. Did you ever let me become Lord in your life? Or has he been a little rabbit's foot? You kind of play with religion. You know the talk. You know the language. You know how to play church, but you don't know him. You haven't believed in him. He hasn't taken. You don't have eternal life. Well, you, what you've got is a miserable life because you're shutting him out. Shutting him out. When will you say in your heart, I believe this message. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're not some little errand boy that you've got to get me to heaven. He didn't have to do anything with you. He can be your judge. He's awesome. We've lost the fear of him. He's a great and mighty God. He's powerful, powerful. He holds your breath in his hand. Oh, he comes in love, but he's not just loving He's judging too. He's a holy God. Amen. We got this idea he's a heavenly Santa Claus. I made him to be a nice old man. Oh, no, no, no. It's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God, for he has all power, all power. He knows if you believe or not. Don't tell me you raised your hand when you were in junior church. That doesn't count. Are you raising your heart now? Today is the end. Is he inside? Is he running you from the inside out? It's terrible to see how many people are going to hell from a church pew. They, they know all the songs. They know this. They know how to do that. And, but this record, I write these things that you might believe in who I am. I write these things that by believing in me, C.S. Lewis said, Take Jesus and God would throw in heaven for nothing. Take Jesus and he'll throw in heaven free of charge. Don't be talking about going to heaven. Who wants to go to heaven if Jesus isn't there? Hell is a place where Jesus won't be. If you don't want Jesus in time, he won't want you in eternity. It's that simple. You take him in time, and he'll take you for eternity. You reject him in time, he rejects you for eternity. 
There's a famous historical story that Donald Gray Barnhouse used to tell, and uh, I, I love the story. It's a story that uh, Barnhouse says he was visiting England, and he's visiting Winchester, England, and the caregiver of the Winchester uh, castle or church kind of giving tours and begin to tell the story of when the Duke of uh, Wellington, uh, when he was involved with uh, Napoleon from France, and they had the famous Battle of Waterloo. I mean, Napoleon was unstoppable, but the Duke went over to France. They're fighting there. And so without telegraphs, without media, the only way the news could reach England is they had ships in the English Channel and they had flagmen that could send the message to Winchester, uh, I believe in Winchester, England. And from there, they would keep signaling until it got all the way to London. Well, as the battle went and as the message began to be sent out, uh, the ship came into the channel and the flagman, the, the signaler, began to send the message. And this is what he sent. The words were, first of all, Wellington. The next word was defeated. If you know anything about the Atlantic and the English Channel, fog came in. And for over two hours, the message went across England that Wellington had been defeated by Napoleon and the nation went into mourning and grief. Two hours later, the fog lifted and the signal came again. Wellington defeated the enemy. There was a day on Black Friday where the message the devil sent the world as the king has been defeated. But three days later, the fog lifted. Three days later, he defeated the enemy. He defeated the devil. He defeated death. He defeated everything that would destroy you and keep you from knowing Christ. A living Christ is the foundation of God's church. By his life, we know he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection, I'm guaranteed that I have been justified before God. For he was delivered up for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. I invite you, take him, invite him. Have you ever opened the door? Have you ever put faith in him? How much evidence do you need? Read the gospel. Read 1 Corinthians 15, where 500 at one time saw him. Peter, James, the Apostle Paul. For 2,000 years, do you think we have believed a myth or that we've met a living Christ? Can you remember the first time? I love what John Newton said. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. 
And it was grace that relieved me of my fears. I ask you today, don't be surprised in the future with judgment. Be surprised with the greatest celebration in all of eternity when all of his redeemed people gather around his throne in resurrected bodies. You know, when I go through the church today, we got a sister visiting. Her body has been racked by pain and difficulty. So many of the saints that I visit in this church, first thing we ask is, what are you on? What's your prescription? Because if you live long enough, you're going to be on something. But guess what? There's a better day coming, and you're going to be surprised when it happens. You're going to be surprised.